You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of the kidnap of Don Tidy. Kidnapping and abductions for ransom are not something that you would associate with Ireland in general. Italy with the Mafia or the cartels in South America would perhaps be your first thoughts. But throughout the early 1980s, there were a series of kidnappings for ransom in the Republic. The first in what became a series of abductions or attempted abductions was the kidnapping of Bernard Dunn the joint managing director of Dunn Stores, who was taken from County Louth by armed men at a staged traffic accident. He was released without harm on the 23rd of October 1982 after a ransom was paid, believed to be in the region of £300,000. In November of 1982, two daughters of bank managers were taken and again a ransom was demanded. The two girls were eventually released, but there was no confirmation as to whether the 50000 demanded for this was ever paid over. On the 21st of March 1983, the wife of publisher Albert Folans was held hostage at their home in Enniscary, County Wicklow. £10,000 was reportedly paid for her release. The following month, the wife and daughter of a businessman who imported steel, Peter Sims, were held hostage in their home. £10,000 was paid for their release the following morning. In June 1983, Elise Jones, the wife of managing director of Allied Couriers, was abducted and taken to a house in St. Margaret's, North County, Dublin. Gardee managed to rescue her within a few hours, but her captors all escaped. On the August bank holiday weekend 1983, Richard Hill, who had links to the INLA, was abducted from his holiday home in Lalala, County Mayo, along with his stepdaughter. They were rescued two weeks later. And in September of 1983, Alma Menina was kidnapped. She was a prominent art collector and the wife of a Canadian businessman. Gardie rescued her three hours after she was taken from her home in Greystones. Reports of the kidnaps shared pages with warnings that people who had insurance policies to protect against kidnap and ransom demands would see an increase in their premiums, though it was noted that kidnappings such as these were still relatively small in number compared to other countries, such as in Italy. In Ireland, it appeared that the families of the owners of well-known businesses were a particular target and some of the most well-known companies were the growing chains of supermarkets. At the time, Quinsworth was the largest supermarket chain in the Republic, with 57 stores nationwide. It was run by two Canadian brothers, Galen and Gary Weston, whose father had had interest in a number of businesses in the UK and Ireland, dating back to the 1950s. 
The group also owned Steward Supermarkets in Northern Ireland and Brown Thomas Department Store in Dublin. The supermarkets were owned and operated through a parent group in the UK called Associated British Foods. Both Quinsworth and the Stewart shops were managed and run in Ireland by a man named Don Tidy, who was employed as the senior executive of the company here and was based out of Quinsworth's head office in South County Dublin. He and his wife Janice had moved over from England in 1968 with their two young sons. They would go on to have another child here, a little girl named Susan. The family lived in a modern home on Stocking Lane in Rathfarnham. Initially, Don worked for Dunn Stores, but after two years with them, he moved to Quinsworth and took up a position as the senior executive, chairman and chief executive. His wife sadly died of leukaemia in 1980. Don Tidy was described by business associates as the kind of man who kept to himself. He was a quiet but warm person, just mild-mannered. In 1983, he was 49 years old and had been living in Ireland for 15 years. On Thursday, the 24th of November, 1983, at about a quarter to eight, Don Tidy left his house in his car with his daughter Susan, who was 13 years old. He was going to drop her at school at the prestigious Alexandra College before heading to work himself. Alistair, his son who was 19 at the time and also worked at Quinsworth's head office, left the house at the same time and followed down the lane in his own car. But just as they left the cul-de-sac, they came upon what appeared to be a Garda roadblock. There was a beige Cortina and what looked to be a yellow Ford Escort parked at the side of the road. One of them had a flashing blue light on its roof. A number of men were standing near the cars on the road. Mr. Tidy was flagged down by a man in a dark blue uniform, but when he stopped the car, the man pointed a submachine gun at his head. Don tried to put the car into reverse, but before he was able to get away, another man pulled a gun on young Susan and grabbed her out of the car. Yet another man forced Alistair Tidy out of the car behind. The kids were thrown to the side of the road as their father was pulled from behind the wheel of the Dahmer and driven away. At least two of the men had worn balaclavas, and the others were dressed to look like Gardi. The incident was over in just a few minutes. Shots were fired, but no cartridge cases were found on the side of the road. Tidy was driven off in his Dahmer, which was followed by the two cars that had been parked on the verge. They headed up Stocking Lane towards the mountains. Tidy's own car was abandoned only half a mile away from the incident with its tires slashed. The other cars, the Cortina and the Escort, headed north towards Old Bon and got into a minor collision with another car on the way. They continued at speed nonetheless down the Old Court Road. Then they changed course and headed towards Maynooth, County Kildare, where the two cars used in the abduction were abandoned. The escort was set on fire, but the Cortina was left intact. The abductors got into three new vehicles, a yellow Mini, a red van and a brown Renault. Roadblocks were set up around Dublin and other areas to try and intercept the gang as they moved tidy. Gardy would deny that there was any particular pattern to the blocks, though, 
or that they were concentrated along the border with Northern Ireland. Gardee remained in the tidy home in case contact was made by the abductors by phone, but the house received no calls from them. As news of the kidnapping broke, a Garda spokesman said that there were thousands of lines of inquiry that were being pursued. He also refused to comment on the rumour that the kidnap had been carried out in order to secure the release of five men who'd been jailed for the attempted abduction of Galen Weston the previous year. Quinsworth executives had been the target of kidnapping plots before. In August of 1982, eight men with connections to the provisional IRA were ambushed by Gardee as they approached the home of Galen Weston in County Wicklow. Gardee had been waiting for the raiders to arrive and when they made themselves known to the masked men trying to enter the house, shots were exchanged. As luck would have it, the Westons weren't at home that day. Galen Weston was in England, playing polo with the Prince of Wales in Windsor. Five men were brought to court on firearm charges, but three of the gang escaped the waiting guardee. Just three weeks before Don Tidy's abduction, those five men were sentenced to jail terms of up to 14 years for their involvement in the shootout at the home of Galen Weston. On Saturday, the 26th of November, reports emerged that Gardee and Kerry, in the far south of the country, were looking for a group of men from the provisional IRA thought to be involved in the kidnapping. Two of the men were thought to be part of a gang which was responsible for a number of raids on hotels, shops and factories. It was also reported that they may have been involved with the leasing of a car on Tuesday the 22nd of November, possibly one of the cars that had been used in the abduction. A couple were detained in Kerry at Tralee Garda Station in connection with the incident. Neither had been charged. The man was removed to hospital for a heart complaint at some point during his questioning, and the couple were believed by Gardee to be linked in particular with one of the cars used in the ambush. The wife was eventually released, and a further three people were questioned by Gardee and Tralee, but were subsequently also released without charge. Michael Burke, reported to be a 40-year-old painter, was charged on that Saturday night at a special sitting of the District Court in Tralee Garda Station with falsely imprisoning Don Tidy and unlawfully detaining him at his home. By the following Monday, the 28th of November, Gardy had said that they were satisfied that they knew the identities of at least some of the gang who had been involved in the kidnapping. The three men who had escaped after the botched kidnapping attempt at Galen Weston's home were thought to be involved in this, but the search for them was further complicated by a high level of activity from both the provisional IRA and the offshoot group, the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA. Its leader, Dominic Mad Dog McGlinchey, was on the run in the Republic and using his extensive contacts within the paramilitary and Republican worlds to stay one step ahead of the Gardee. Many of the men suspected of involvement in hiding McGlinchey also drew police attention in relation to the search for Don Tidy. But Gardee said at that time that there were still no leads as to Don Tidy's whereabouts and there had been no communication from the gang in relation to Tidy's release or a demand for ransom. 
Gerdie issued further appeals for information relating to the three cars that were thought to have been involved. A Mini had been spotted by the Hellfire Club in the Dublin Mountains the morning of the incident. Three men were in the car at the time and it had no number plates displayed. There was another man standing near the car, described by the witness as being six foot two with dark, greasy hair. He was unshaven and wearing a long raincoat. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends from Ritual. Ritual Essential for Women is the multivitamin now totally reimagined. What I love about it is that it is science-backed. It is obsessively researched, ensuring that what's in it are things you actually need, and Ritual delivers them in a way your body can absorb. Ritual makes supporting your nutritional health easy, By taking just two capsules every morning, I know that my body is getting what it needs. Ritual has those nine nutrients that most women don't get enough of in their diet, so I know I've got at least that covered. And Ritual is there for me, supporting a strong foundation for my health. And Ritual is traceable and transparent. All of their vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are listed and easy to see and won't cause a queasy stomach. A subscription with Ritual is easy to start and it's easy to pause. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month with no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight and right now, Ritual is offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that supports a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com forward slash M-E-N-S to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com forward slash men's. The directors of Quinsworth met over that weekend and were thought to have discussed plans to secure Tidy's release. Fear for Don Tidy's safety increased the longer time passed without word from his captors. Tidy's 22-year-old son Andrew spoke on RTE on the 1st of December saying, quote, We have now had to live for a week without my father, and the strain has been quite terrible. The greatest worry is the silence. Every time the phone rings, your hopes are raised, and then when it isn't the kidnappers, they are dashed, end quote. There was an appeal by all three children for their father's return. But by this stage, the press were under the impression that contact had been made with Tidy's abductors by representatives from the Quinsworth group. On the Tuesday night, an executive from Quinsworth, Des McSherry, had been brought to Whitehall Garda Station at a quarter past eleven at night after he was intercepted at Dublin Airport about to board a chartered plane. He left the Garda Station on the morning of the 30th of November at a quarter to twelve. The guardie would not tell the press whether he had been arrested or whether he'd been at the station voluntarily. He'd been seen getting off a plane on Monday night. It was believed that he'd been under Garda surveillance for the entire week. Once Mr. McSharry left the Garda station, he went straight to Quinsworth head office at Dunleary. 
The press speculated that these movements, along with the near-continuous meetings being held by the Quinsworth Group, indicated that there were negotiations underway to secure the release of Mr. Tidy. The Irish Times reported that the ransom demand had been made by phone on Sunday evening to the London offices of Associated British Foods and that the man on the phone had identified himself as a member of the provisional IRA. It emerged that a phone call had been placed to ABF on Sunday the 27th of November and was followed by a photograph of the captive tidy. This was a colour Polaroid of Don Tidy holding a copy of the newspaper, dated just a few days after the abduction, which was sent to Associated British Foods in London. Mr. Tidy was holding a copy of the Evening Herald newspaper, a Dublin publication, leading Gardee to suspect that Tidy was being held captive in the Republic. But both Garda and government policy was to make efforts to stop a ransom being paid. The Minister for Justice, Mr. Noonan, spoke to the doll on the 1st of December and said, quote, the payment would be likely to encourage others to resort to the same tactic, end quote. The government couldn't condone large sums of money being handed over to paramilitary or other subversive groups. In the wake of the discussion at Parliament, Quinsworth's parent group, Associated British Foods, announced that they would not be paying the ransom that had been demanded of them. It was £5 million sterling. The people responsible for the abduction were confirmed as the provisional IRA. The owner, Gary Weston, released a statement saying, quote, My company has received demands of money. My company is aware that the government has stated that it is opposed to the payment of ransom to terrorist organisations and it has been specifically asked that this policy should be observed in this instance. With the life of a man at stake, one who is an admired and respected colleague, we stand ready to secure his safe release, but we feel we are bound by the overriding policy decisions of the governments concerned. End quote. The British government also opposed any payment being made. On Taoiseach rang Margaret Thatcher while she was mid-flight between New Delhi and London to ensure that British authorities would also block any attempt for the ransom demand to be paid. Galen Weston was contacted on foot of that call by British authorities. Meanwhile, house-to-house searches were launched in a number of places in the following week in an effort to locate Tidy, with Dublin suburbs areas of Cork and Galway included, and then an expansion into counties Meath, Roscommon and Mayo. Yet there was still no sign of the missing father of three. Late on the evening of Sunday the 5th of December, three men and a woman were detained in Navan, County Meath, and arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act which in part lists so-called scheduled offences related to membership of illegal organisations. Those charged with these kind of crimes will find themselves before the Special Criminal Court in Ireland, a court with no jury, set up to deal with the fallout of violence committed by paramilitary groups as part of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. While county-to-county searches were ongoing and appeals were being made for information from the public, the Gardaí had also mounted a two-week-long undercover surveillance operation. 
They had been tracking the movements of well-known and senior members of the provisional IRA. In the course of that surveillance operation, a senior member of that organization had been observed in the area of Dorada Woods near Ballinamore, County Leitrim, and he was not from that area. This aroused suspicion and indicated to Gardy that this was an area that should be watched closely. The man appeared in the area at least three other times, and Gardy believed he was acting as sort of a liaison between the armed captors and the provisional IRA sympathisers in Ballinamore, who were providing a sort of backup for the kidnapping operation. Ballinamore, as a small village, was no stranger to the Republican movement or the provisional IRA. In fact, that organisation was founded in the village in a room above one of its pubs in 1970, when the group split from the official IRA. Those who were in attendance at that meeting took leadership roles in the new movement and became immediate targets of the old guard of the IRA, who were trying to stamp out the provost before they grew, but that didn't work. Gardi in the area were not unused to coming across armed men in the countryside, which was, at the time, one of the poorest areas in Europe. And so Leitrim became one of the areas of focus in the search for Don Tidy. On Tuesday the 29th of November, a man was seen running from a remote farmhouse near Ballinamore. He was seen at around 5pm and just after, the area was flooded with heavily armed guardie, suspecting that the strange occurrence had something to do with the abduction. On Sunday the 11th of December, Gardie raided homes of those who were suspected sympathisers of the provisional IRA in Ballinamore. Support for the illegal organisation there was thought to be relatively high, and perhaps higher than elsewhere in the country, which might explain why the gang had managed to hide their hostage for such an extended period of time there. On the evening of the 14th of December, Gardie and the army swarmed into County Leitrim. A hundred Gardaí from Dublin were dispatched to Leitrim and Cavan, while 500 members of the 58th Battalion stationed in Finner Camp, County Donegal, were moved into Carrick-on-Shannon, County Leitrim. Roadblocks were set up throughout the county stretching north towards Ballinamore and the border. A cordon was established at the 10-mile radius from the centre of the town, and each square mile within that cordon was searched by teams of 25 Gardaí. Over the week, information was developed that suggested that they should be paying attention to an area called the Dorada Woods. The senior man that they'd seen was suspected of getting supplies to deliver to the captors. Searches in the area were stepped up and more Gardaí were brought in. Nearly a thousand men from either the army or the Gardaí began combing through the area. Then, 23 days after Don Tidy was taken from outside his home, a renewed demand for the £5 million ransom was made. The demand was rejected by Associated British Foods. No details of how the demand came in or any of the conditions associated with it were released to the press. The same morning, four men were arrested in Ballinamore as a preemptive strike. They were John Joe McGurl, Martin Donnelly, Dennis Downing and Peter Rowell. John Joe McGurl also happened to be a local politician who was the vice president of provisional Sinn Féin 
a member of the IRA since the 1930s and a local publican and undertaker. In particular, the movements of his hearse had been watched closely in case it had been used to move supplies and people around the countryside. On Friday the 16th of December, things finally came to a head. 500 more members of the army were moved into the Leitrim area, bringing their total number to around 1,000 to add to the many hundreds of Gardaí also in the area. A youth had been seen running across some fields near to a wooded area at Ballinamoor, and the focus shifted to that area. Dorada Woods is a small place. It's only about one acre of tree cover on the top of a hill, which at the time was made of young pine. The wooded area was still full of new growth, only five to six foot high, and the lower branches of the trees had not yet been tidied at the bottom, making it hard to move through. Probationer Gardy, who had been called in from their training to assist in the search for Mr. Tidy, were dispatched to help search through this dense undergrowth. They were supervised by armed detective Gardy and soldiers. While searching Gerada Woods, three of the Garda recruits came across a tarp and saw that there was movement from beneath it. It was the hideout that Gardy and the army had been scouring the countryside for. The noise of the approaching Garda recruits had alerted the gang within to their arrival, and it gave them time to spread out around the makeshift tent, with just one man guarding Tidy. The searchers took a few paces back from the suspicious polythene and called for backup. Just as they sounded the alarm, two men stood up from beneath the tarp and began shooting at the trainees. A young Garda named Gary Sheehan was hit by a bullet to the head. He was 23 years old and had been training in Temple Moor for just three months. After that, hand grenades were thrown and one went off. Garda Sheehan again took the force of that blast. As the shooting began, Private Paddy Kelly, who was in a supervisory role for the search to be completed at Dorada Woods, moved towards the searchers. As he did so, he too was shot and wounded in the neck. Don Tidy had been in the dugout with the armed men. It was a small cleared area in the undergrowth, measuring only five foot by fifteen. The floor had been covered with twigs and scrub, and the dugout area was covered over with a polythene tarp, which was also covered in twigs and leaves in an effort to camouflage it. The abductors had made Don Tidy wear a balaclava over his head with only a slip for eyes to see through, and he had been kept in the dugout for the entirety of his kidnapping. But when the gang realised that the searchers were drawing close to them, they had Don move by walking behind one of them, watching the boots of the man in front while trying to keep him crouched low to the ground. But Tidy could also see the boots of the nearby guardie. As the provisionals and their hostage tried to move through the woods, the firing began again. The guardie thought that the gang were preparing to shoot their hostage. When the shooting began, Tidy used the confusion to make his escape. He rolled away from the dugout through some undergrowth and down a slope at the edge of the wood. He was seen escaping but was thought to be a member of the kidnapping gang by a soldier and two plainclothes guardie. 
Meanwhile, Tidy thought the men he could see were provisional IRA members. Thankfully, none of the security forces shot at Tidy at this stage, but one of his captors realised that he'd fled and shot at him while the fracas continued at the dugout. The shot missed. Tidy was held to the ground by the soldiers and told to put his hands over his head while he tried to tell the officers who he was. He showed them his civilian clothes, which were under the gear he'd been forced to dress in, and told them to listen to his accent. After the guardian soldiers realised that the man they had was in fact the hostage, he was led to safety. Meanwhile, back at the dugout, the gunmen split into two groups and made off. One group headed towards a nearby house and to a blue opal cadet that had the keys waiting in the ignition. Two others overpowered four unarmed Garda recruits and three soldiers were then taken hostage by the gang. The soldiers were disarmed and forced out of the woods by the provisionals who were pointing Kalashnikovs and their own rifles at them. The small group was forced to walk across nearby fields until the gang saw another checkpoint in the distance and realised that there was little chance of making it beyond that point. Before they set the soldiers and guardie free, though, the senior guarda was beaten with a rifle. The opal drove to the road at the bottom of the hill to try and pick up the other men, but instead ran into the guardie and soldiers who were with Mr. Tidy. The gang fired out the window at the officers and one of the policemen, Garda Donal Kelleher, put himself between Mr. Tidy and the gunman. For his bravery, Garda Kelleher was shot in the leg. The car sped on past but came up against another patrol where there was another gunfight during which the hostage soldiers were released. Yet the men in the car still escaped Garda custody. Roadblocks sprung up as Gardi and the army tried to net the fleeing gang. A number of people suspected of association with subversive groups were also placed under surveillance. Another man was shot and injured at one of the army checkpoints. Those manning the checkpoints were on the lookout for cars that had possibly been hijacked by the gang who had abducted Don Tidy. This man was 27-year-old Jer Rin and it was initially reported that he had been shot when he drove his car away from a checkpoint at speed after being waved through. The soldiers at the checkpoint were under instructions to shoot at suspicious vehicles, and Rin's fast-moving car attracted the attention of a soldier who, it was said at the time, did not know that the car had passed the check. One shot was fired which struck Mr. Rin as he sat in the car with his wife, and the car spun out of control. However, it would be later reported that, just after midnight, Mr. Rin and his wife had arrived at the checkpoint from within the Cordendoff area, and though the vehicle did stop, after a request to search it was made, they took off again at speed. It was at that point that the soldier shot four rounds from his rifle, with one hitting Mr. Rin in the head. Jer Rin later died from his wounds in the intensive care unit at Richmond Hospital in Dublin. After his rescue, Don Tidy was brought immediately to Ballyconnell Garda Station before being taken to Cavan and then onto his family home to be reunited with his children. Initially, Tidy was described as buoyant, no doubt due to the adrenaline rush and relief that his ordeal had ended. But as he was driven towards his home, he sat in the back of a Garda car crying 
as two guards tried to comfort and reassure him. A number of young Garda recruits were brought to the local hospital to be treated for shock. In the hours after the rescue, Gardi and army forces continued to work on the basis that the men that they were after remained contained within the cordon of roadblocks that had been set up by them. An area of five or six square miles was locked down just north of the village of Ballinamore. This was rough countryside, mainly made up of boggy scrub, but it was also dotted with stands of trees. The army and Gardi dressed in camouflage gear with black paint on their faces for a nighttime operation, while also heavily armed with machine guns and rifles. Their numbers covered the little roads that crisscrossed the hillsides, and they took up positions lying in ditches and gateways. People were evacuated from their homes in the sparsely populated area. There was a sighting of a number of men in the Ballinamore area in the wake of the rescue, as searches for those who were responsible for the tidy kidnapping continued. Rangers spotted at least two men, possibly a third, at a tree line, but they immediately disappeared back into the cover of the trees. There was also a large pool of blood found near a bridge at Cornelie, close to the woods where the shootout had occurred, and on Tuesday, rifles and bullets were found as the search continued. Private Patrick Kelly's rifle had been located on the Monday after the rescue, not far from where he had been killed. Hundreds of soldiers and heavily armed guardie continued their search at times crawling through thick undergrowth and creating their own dugouts to cut off the ability for the gang to move about. But by Tuesday the 20th of December, the efforts were hampered by poor weather, including a heavy mist which delayed the deployment of assistance in the air by way of a helicopter. In the wake of the deaths resulting from the abduction, the Taoiseach Gareth Fitzgerald told the Irish Times that he would consider the position of the Dáil in relation to the prescription of Sinn Féin party members sitting alongside others in the Dáil given their associations. Jerry Adams said that he regretted the deaths, but said that the provisional IRA gunmen involved in the shootouts were, quote, doing their jobs, end quote. He was also simultaneously refusing to condemn a bombing that had occurred in Harrods department store in London, which killed five people that same weekend. Again, he described the deaths as regrettable. Don Tidy spoke to the press on Saturday afternoon briefly. He thanked everyone who had been involved in the search and expressed his deep sympathy for the families who had lost loved ones in the rescue. He told the press who had gathered on the road just outside his home that he couldn't hear their questions because he had had a piece of fabric tied tightly around his head and his hearing had been affected. He explained cuts and grazes on his face as the result of being kept in the countryside and told the curious reporters that he wasn't able to hear the conversations of his captors. On Sunday, six men who had been detained by Gardi in relation to the abduction were released and searches continued for four gunmen who had escaped. The authorities were less certain that they had been contained within the ring of checkpoints. Working hours for army officers and Gardi were extended in the area for the search to continue and to provide enhanced security in the area. 
post-mortems were carried out on Garda Sheehan and Private Kelly on Saturday the 17th and Sunday the 18th of December, with their funerals occurring on the Sunday and Monday afternoons in their home places. Guards of honour were formed in each case while their coffins were brought to their local churches. The Provisional IRA also released a statement in relation to the kidnapping for ransom and the two deaths that had occurred as a result. They said, quote, Our volunteers were involved in the abduction of Don Tidy and Friday's shootout at Ballinamore. In the fatal shootout, they were acting in defence of their lives and had in their minds the task force's attempted massacre of IRA volunteers at Roundwood and the killing of Eamon Byrne in Dublin. The situation and atmosphere had been hyped by massive searches and dragnets and by the Dublin government's encouragement to Mr Tidy's company, who refused to pay. This trigger happiness was further borne out by the Free State Army's shooting of a passerby. We repeat, our struggle is being fought against tremendous odds and only because of the disastrous moral failure of the Free State's governments to face up to their responsibility and use their resources to end the evil of British rule in the north of Ireland. The abduction of Don Tidy and the ransom demand was related to the struggle in the north, and the fatal shootings were clearly distinct from, say, a premeditated ambush on the task force or free state army, which would be an attack on the institutions of the state. We regret the deaths and injuries, firstly, from a humanitarian point of view, and secondly, because the British government will now rub its hands and watch with glee as the free state government reacts to us instead of to the issue of the British partition of Ireland. End quote. Two men were briefly detained on Tuesday the 20th, but were both released after it was decided that they had nothing to do with the kidnapping. Detectives believed that the kidnappers were being left food and drink in a milk churn found not far from where they had held Tidy in the dugout. Forensic evidence discovered at the dugout pointed to four known suspects. Three of the men were suspected of having been escapees of the Mays prison in the north, with the fourth having been on the run in the Republic for a period of time. One of the escapees thought to be involved was later named by the Irish Times as Brendan McFarlane who had been serving five life sentences for a bombing on the Shankill Road in 1976. McFarlane had assumed the role of commanding officer of the Republican prisoners at the maze after the death of hunger striker Bobby Sands. And McFarlane and 37 other prisoners had made their escape from the prison in September of 1983. But by the end of that week, the searches were scaled back with 50% fewer guardie assigned to the operation and with the hopes of finding the culprits within their cordon diminishing. However, house-to-house inquiries continued in the Ballinamore area and statements continued to be taken. On Thursday the 22nd of December, a Leitrim farmer was charged with falsely imprisoning Don Tidy at a special sitting of the Special Criminal Court in Dublin. He was 58-year-old John Kernan. He had been arrested in his home in Ballinamore the previous day under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. He owned the plot of land where Dorada Wood was located. Mr Kernan told the judge he was innocent as the day he was born when asked by the court if he had anything to add. 
At a later bail hearing, Kernan would say that two weeks before the kidnapping, he'd seen a strange man near his property and had given him boiling water. He said he'd also been in the woods two days before the kidnapping to cut two Christmas trees. His counsel also told the court that Kernan was in bad health, having suffered a stroke in 1981. Notwithstanding that, bail was refused by the court at that time, only to be granted at his appeal to the High Court a month later. His conditions included that he was to report twice weekly to the local Garda station and to give an undertaking not to interfere with witnesses. But the surety required was £10,000 and the sums of money needed to be gathered, so Kernan was not immediately released. By Saturday the 24th, the Irish Times was carrying reports that it was thought that the kidnappers had escaped the cordoned area and the search was expected to be scaled down even further. On Sunday the 25th of December, very few Gardaí were left, manning a dozen or so road checkpoints. It was Christmas Day and on top of the public holiday it seemed impractical to keep high numbers of officers in an area where it was unlikely that the kidnappers were. On the 10th of January 1984, a 36-year-old farmer was also brought before the Special Criminal Court, Charles Gilhaney. But his solicitor told the judges that his client had not been properly brought before the court, arguing that his arrest had been unlawful. The judge then rose and re-sat in his capacity as a High Court judge to hear a habeas corpus application, which was granted conditionally. Two days later, after much legal argument back and forth, Gilhaney was indeed charged on the 13th of January with false imprisonment. He was remanded on bail when two men presented themselves before the court and guaranteed sureties of £5,000 each. Gilhaney would be expected to appear at his local Garda station twice weekly and not to interfere with witnesses or to allow the interference of third parties. The two farmers would both face trial together at the Special Criminal Court on the 3rd of April, 1984. On Tuesday the 13th of March, the inquests into the deaths of Garda recruit Gary Sheehan and Private Paddy Kelly were held. Corporal Paddy Shine gave evidence at the hearing and recalled what happened just prior to Private Kelly sustaining the gunshot wound. Shine and Kelly had been placed in charge of a team of searchers, who were mainly Garda recruits. The area they were asked to cover had trees no larger than five or six feet tall, with heavy undergrowth. One of the recruits told them that there was someone ahead not responding to them, and Private Kelly moved up the embankment that surrounded the trees and was shot. After that, there was some sort of boom perhaps a stun grenade. The corporal described how the provisionals had emerged from the forest with him at gunpoint and ordered two other soldiers to drop their weapons. They made the choice to do as they were asked, not willing to take action that would have resulted in Shine shooting, and were taken hostage too. The hijack of the car was described, as well as actions taken by a Garda recruit who had tried to block its escape by pushing a patrol car into the middle of the road. But Corporal Shine described a scene of confusion. After the shootout, a doctor had been called to the scene and he described to the inquest what he found there. 
He entered Dorada Woods at a quarter to four. He first saw a soldier sitting in an upright position against a tree. Six foot away, there was a man in a Garda uniform who he found lying face down. The doctor examined both men by torchlight and certified them as having passed away. The coroner's court heard that Private Paddy Kelly was 36 years old from County Longford and had been in the army for 15 years. He was married and had four children, ranging in age from nine down to just 11 weeks old. He had been stationed with the Western Command in Athlone, and at the time of his death, he had just returned from a posting in the Lebanon. His brother Jim, also a private in the army, was in the Lebanon at the time of his killing. Gary Sheehan was just 23 and had begun his training in Templemore College only a few months before his death. Both his father and grandfather had been members of Angarda Shiakona before him. The state pathologist, Dr. John Harbison, told the court that Private Kelly had been shot in the neck and had died of shock and blood loss. Garda Cadet Sheehan had been shot in the head and chest. The jury decided that both men had been killed by person or persons unknown. I'm so pleased to also welcome back BetterHelp as sponsor for this week's episode. I couldn't have joined up with BetterHelp at a better time. BetterHelp is professional counselling done securely online. In these times of social distancing, it really is perfect. And with my normal routine and schedules thrown out the window, the flexibility that BetterHelp provides is a total lifesaver. I can schedule appointments around the madness that is my home life now. And in between, if I need to, I can message my therapist anytime with what's on my mind and she gets back to me. In these unprecedented times, I can't think of anything more important than making sure you're taking care of your mental health. With BetterHelp, you just fill out a few questionnaires and they'll assess your needs. Within a few hours, they match you up with your new counsellor and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. And they're committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. BetterHelp is available worldwide. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. Join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And right now, there's a special offer for Mens Rea listeners. Get 10% off your first month of professional online counselling at betterhelp.com forward slash mens. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash M-E-N-S. The trials of Charles Gilhini and John Kernan opened before the Special Criminal Court in Dublin on the 2nd of April 1984. Both pleaded not guilty to the charge of falsely imprisoning Don Tidy. Mr Justice Hamilton was presiding. Martin Kennedy, senior counsel, represented Mr Kernan and immediately asked for a direction from the court that the case be dismissed because the evidence before the court was insufficient to prove guilt in his client's case. He argued that even if everything presented by the DPP was true and correct, and accepted as such by the court, it wouldn't be enough to sustain the charge of false imprisonment. The only evidence against Mr. Kernan would be two statements he had made to the Gardaí that a man from the quote-unquote IRA called Sonny 
who was from the north and on the run, had started calling to Mr. Kernan's home and Mr. Kernan had given him some water and tea. The application was refused. Another application regarding the admissibility of the statements was also made. Don Tidy gave evidence on the first day of the trial and told the three-judge panel of his ordeal at the hands of his captors. He described the initial kidnap and having a gun put to his head after giving his name to a man who was dressed like a guard. He was then forced into the back of a car face down. He was struck on the head with a gun and another man sat on him for a one-hour-long drive. When the car stopped, he was hooded and transferred into another vehicle. It happened very quickly and he was aware that there were a number of people in the vehicle when he was shoved into it. He couldn't see where the car was going, but he could feel the winding route that they were taking. When they came to a stop once more, Tidy was taken from the car, searched and sat propped up. He was questioned, items were taken from him and he was informed that he had been kidnapped. The gang wanted information about his contacts. They stayed there until it was dark and then took another much longer ride in a car. When they reached their destination, Tidy described being forced on a march across fields while he was still blindfolded and hooded. He was being led by his wrists. After the long walk, they arrived at the dugout. There he was bound by chains at the ankles and had what he described as a halter wrapped around his legs. Great lengths were taken to conceal from him how many men were present or holding him captive at every point. He said, quote, The whole operation was conducted in almost total silence, with total discipline. There was a minimum of conversation, and when it was conducted, it was in whispers, normally by the same person. He was allowed to wash, and they gave him food, and he slept on straw in the dugout. During the day, he was kept tethered to a tree with the hood over his head. Eventually, he was just kept in the dugout, and he was told that they might move him shortly he was to remain silent. They'd moved about 15 foot from the hideout when Tidy heard the voices of the security forces and the shooting began. At that point, he was pushed to the ground and when the shooting stopped, he realised he'd been covered by a Garda recruit and he was then taken into custody until his identity was confirmed. On the second day of the trial, the submission regarding the admissibility of the statements made to Gardee was heard and Mr. Kernan gave evidence. He insisted to the court that he had no idea that the man being kept in the woods was Don Tidy and that he thought he had come across an escapee from Long Kesh, otherwise known as the Maze Prison. He and his wife had both been arrested on December 21st. This arrest had occurred When Kernan went into the village to get some food, and when he returned to the house, it was surrounded by Gardi. He was told that his wife was in a serious condition at Clone's Garda station, and that the Gardi would bring him to her. Kernan was first brought to Ballinamore station, where he was fingerprinted, and then onto Clone's. After his arrival there, he told the court he'd asked for his wife, but got no response from the Gardi. When he asked for a solicitor, however, a guard swore at him and left him alone in a small room. Kernan told the court he could hear his wife screaming and crying from somewhere else in the station. The next morning, when he finally was allowed to see his wife, she told him that she had told the guardee everything and that he was to tell them what he knew. 
Under cross-examination from Kenneth Mills, senior counsel for the DPP, Kernan said that he had been told by Gardee that if he made a statement, then his wife would be released. He said that the statement that had been presented to the court, that the Gardee claimed he had made, was completely wrong, and that he didn't know anything about Don Tidy. He was questioned once more by his own counsel, and Kernan explained that he had met a man in the woods on his lands two days before Tidy was kidnapped. He thought this man, with a Northern Irish accent, was an escapee from the maze. The stranger's name was Sonny, and Kernan agreed to help him out with some basic supplies while he was on the run. Kernan had said, quote, For the first couple of days, I did not realise what the water was for. But then I discovered after a while that Sonny had done tidy in the wood, end quote. The wood the statement referred to was Dorada, the woods on the land Kernan owned. The day before Tidy was rescued, Kernan and his wife, Rose, had been out in the woods and they'd met Sonny there while he was cleaning a rifle. When they met him, they were only about 25 yards from the dugout. Kernan had told Sonny at that point that he would let him know if he saw any Gardee in the area. And when he heard the shooting the day of Tidy's recovery, Kernan knew that the Gardee and the army must have come upon Sonny and his friends. When he heard that a Garda and a soldier had been killed, he told Gardee that he was sorry then he hadn't come forward sooner. When she took the stand, Rose Kernan told the court she'd been called a prostitute by Gardee. She'd never been charged with anything after the arrest, and after her release, she had to go to the hospital because of her nerves, and she was in there over Christmas. Kernan's solicitor told the special criminal court that he'd written to the superintendent in charge of the Cavan area, saying he was concerned about the state of Kernan's health, and that Rose had told him Gardee were out at the house every day. In relation to Gilhini's statement, evidence of his arrest was given. Gilhini had been arrested at a house in Clogher on the 9th of January and then again on the 11th of January in Dublin. The Garda giving evidence Detective Sergeant William O'Neill said that he had information that armed men had been in Gilhini's house during Mr Tidy's abduction and possibly after he was released. A description of how there had been questions as to the legality of Gilhini's arrest was given to the court too, and the issue of whether Gilhini had been initially charged with a scheduled offence or not. On Thursday the 5th of April, Detective Sergeant Patrick Lina gave evidence that when he interviewed Charles Gilhini, he told the man that a statement had been made which indicated that armed men had been seen around Gilhini's home. In response, Gilhini expressed concerns for his own safety. Gilhini refused to make a statement to the Gardaí after his arrest on the 10th of January, saying he had nothing against the Gardaí, but he didn't want to be branded an informer. Patrick McEntee, senior counsel for Gilhini, brought it to the attention of the court that the two Garda witnesses had given near-identical statements which were both included in the Book of Evidence. The Gardaí were unable to explain to the court why the documents were so incredibly similar. The court ruled that the statements made by Kernan had been given freely and that no undue pressure had been put on him during his Garda interviews. Further, neither men were found to have suffered physical or mental inducements to make the statements, but the court decided it was satisfied Gilhini had asked for a solicitor and had not been provided with one, 
and that therefore those statements were inadmissible. On Friday, the 6th of April, John Kernan was found guilty of falsely imprisoning Don Tidy, while Charles Gilhini was acquitted of the same charge. On Wednesday, the 11th of April, Kernan was sentenced for his part in the Tidy kidnapping. The court had heard evidence from a doctor that had seen Kernan while he was in custody that the 58-year-old was quite frail. He'd suffered from a stroke a number of years before and had bronchitis and a kidney problem. His GP, Dr. Sean Burke, informed the court that his patient was of limited intelligence and was in very bad shape after the stroke. Rose Kernan was also a sick woman and had been hospitalised in recent months. Their six children had to be taken into care when this had happened. Kernan was handed down a sentence of seven years, with five of those suspended due to his ill health. Mr Justice Hamilton emphasised that kidnapping was a very serious crime, and that while Kernan wasn't one of the men who had carried out the act directly, he had provided vital assistance to them and had knowledge of what was going on. Kernan's barrister Martin Kennedy told the court of his client's deep regrets that he had been involved, and emphasised that he had never come to the attention of the Gardee before. On Wednesday the 12th of September 1984, a man from County Cork, William Kelly, who was charged with false imprisonment of Mr Tidy nearly a year before, was granted bail at the High Court. Shortly after, his trial began in the Special Criminal Court. On Tuesday the 10th of October, the 31-year-old father of three pleaded not guilty to the charge. Kenneth Mills, senior counsel for the prosecution, told the court that the painter-decorator was tied to the crime through a red Ford Escort car that he had rented in Tralee on the 22nd of November, 1983. The car was subsequently found burned out near Maynooth, County Kildare, which was confirmed by the engine and chassis numbers. That car, the state alleged, had been used by the gang to transport the raiders rather than Mr Tidy himself. On the first day of Kelly's trial, Don Tidy was required once again to outline what had happened to him over the 23 days he was held hostage for ransom with the provisional IRA. Details of the leasing of the car in question were given by a garage worker who told the court that Kelly arrived to his workplace on the 22nd and had been provided with the red car and had paid for it after requesting a day's hire. Evidence of Mr Kelly's arrest was given. Garda John McHugh from Tralee had arrested him at 10 minutes to 1 in the morning on November 25th, under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. The following day, when William Kelly took the stand before the Special Criminal Court, he admitted that he had in fact hired the car used that day, but said he had no knowledge that it was to be used in the kidnapping. Kelly said he was not prepared to tell the court who had asked him to hire the car, because he was afraid that divulging that information might put him and his family at risk. He'd been told to hire it, was given the money by this person to do so, and was told to then leave the vehicle outside his home with the keys in it. When first approached by Gardee, Kelly had told the police that the car had been stolen from outside his home the night before, but when he was pressed on the matter, he said his life wouldn't be worth living if he gave Gardee the information that they wanted. He'd just been asked to hire the car for a job and regretted his involvement in the incident entirely. He said, quote, I have not been involved in the IRA for years now, and I'm sorry for being involved now. 
If I give any names, my life won't be worth living. I will have to live in the shadows the rest of my life. I would rather spend the rest of my life in jail than give names and be called an informer. End quote. Detective Sergeant Patrick Lina from the Garda Technical Bureau told the court that Kelly had put his head in his hands after he was cautioned and his questioning began. Kelly had admitted that he knew that the car had been got for the purposes of kidnapping. But, according to the detective sergeant, went on to deny any further knowledge of the incident, saying that those directly involved wouldn't trust the likes of him with that sort of thing. Detective Sergeant Lina went on to describe that after the interview, Kelly had begun holding his chest and complaining of heart trouble, and so the guardie arranged to get a doctor for him. Kelly was then taken for observation in the hospital. Allegations that a guard had slapped him while in custody were denied. The day after, Mr Justice Hamilton made his decision. He rejected Kelly's evidence given before the court and said that the statements he had made to the guardie amounted to an admission of knowing he was being asked by a member of the IRA to procure them a car for the purposes of kidnapping. Kelly, the judge said, had played a minor but essential part in the abduction of Don Tidy. He was sentenced to three years for that role. The court accepted that he had not drawn the attention of the Gardaí for nearly ten years and that severing ties with illegal organisations such as the IRA was a difficult thing to do and that there may have been an element of coercion involved in Kelly's actions. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. This game has really come through for me in the past few weeks. Now, more than ever, we need a palate cleanser. And what I love about Best Fiends is that it keeps my brain occupied and focused on it and not what's going on in the news. I'm now on level 245 and I'm busy collecting carrots and clovers. I loved the Paddy's Day-themed challenges because so much of that got lost with everything that's going on these days. Best Fiends is updated with new challenges, themes and events, so there's always something new for you to do. It's a casual game and easy to play and keeps you engaged with its fun challenges and playful design. You can even play while you're offline. Match up your pieces, collect your cute buggy fiends and use them strategically to complete levels by upgrading and evolving them. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. So hurry, download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. 6 months later, yet another trial relating to Don Tidy's abduction occurred. The trial of Michael Burke, also charged with a false imprisonment of Don Tidy, began on Wednesday the 19th of June, 1985, once again before the Special Criminal Court. Burke was 29 years old and from Holly Hill, County Cork. Kevin Hoff for the prosecution told the court that Burke, a former soldier, had presented himself at Tralee Garda Station with his solicitor on the 24th of August, 1984, after he'd become aware that the Gardaí were looking for him. Throughout a number of interviews, Burke had remained silent. 
Unlike the previous men who faced trials for involvement in the tidy kidnapping, Burke stood before the court accused of having been involved in the actual abduction of Don Tidy 18 months before. Once again, Mr. Tidy outlined for the court the details of his ordeal. His son Alistair described having been pulled from his own car and assaulted after being thrown to the side of the road. Susan Tidy recalled her father's car being approached by a man wearing a Garda uniform. She said he was fairly tall, clean-shaven and in his mid-thirties or so. He was one of four or five who had blocked the road. She too was forced from the car at gunpoint and made to lie down. One of the Tidy family's neighbours recalled in more details some of the men on the road. Hodrick Mooney had left for work at about a quarter to eight when he came upon the car with the flashing blue light atop it. He'd stopped and a man dressed as a guard had asked his name and he'd then been waved on. When he was interviewed by Gardy later that day, Mooney was able to complete a photo fit of the man who had stopped him and later picked a photo of the man out of a selection of 28. Mooney also attended an identity parade in August of 1984 in Tralee Garda Station and identified Michael Burke as the man he'd seen that morning. It was the same man who was in the dock on trial. The identity parade had consisted of seven men who Mr. Mooney viewed by looking at them from the front and then the back. He then asked for the men to wear Garda caps and once that was done he indicated which man it was he'd seen the morning of the kidnapping by putting his hand on that man's shoulder. Mooney had picked out Mr. Burke during this process too. The Gardaí were satisfied that this was a positive identification and Detective Superintendent John Courtney said it was one of the best identifications he had seen in his time with the Gardaí. Evidence was also given by Gardaí that after he was identified in the Garda station, Burke had said, quote, I recognised him too. I didn't think he'd recognise me after such a long time. That still doesn't say I murdered any Garda or soldier, end quote. Burke himself then gave evidence and told the court that he was not involved in Tidy's kidnapping. He admitted he was not home that day, but said he couldn't say precisely where he'd been. At the time, he explained that there were difficulties in his marriage and he'd been staying with friends away from home. Burke refused to name the people he had stayed with, however, saying that he didn't want to involve them in the trial. He had heard the guardee had called to his house in Cork, and tired of just hanging around with his friends, he decided he wanted to clear his name, so he'd gone to the Garda station. Burke told the court that he'd asked for his solicitor to be present during the identity parade and protested about taking part, but he wasn't sure of his rights and so went ahead with it. The defence made an application that all the men in the identity parade should be brought to court to give evidence, but this was denied. Burke was found guilty of false imprisonment on Wednesday the 27th of June 1985. Mr Justice Doyle said that Mr Mooney had been an unusually observant and reliable witness and the case had centred on his identification. Michael Burke was sentenced to 12 years for false imprisonment and leave to appeal was refused. There would be one final person charged in relation to the tidy kidnapping, but it would take years to make it to court and for a determination to be handed down. Brendan McFarlane had been found and arrested 
along with two other Mays prison escapees in Holland in January of 1986, along with a haul of weapons intended for use by the provisional IRA. British authorities immediately applied for extradition and McFarlane was returned to the Mays prison where it was expected he would serve out the remainder of his multiple life sentences. However, he was granted parole in 1997. In 1998, McFarlane was arrested in the Republic by Gardie and charged with the unlawful possession of a firearm and the false imprisonment of Don Tidy. At his trial, the prosecution's case was that forensic evidence had been discovered on items found at the dugout where Don Tidy had been held, which linked Brendan McFarlane to that place. A milk carton, a plastic container and a cooking pot were all found to have McFarlane's fingerprints on them. But as the trial progressed, it was revealed that these items had in fact been lost by Gardie. Without the physical exhibits, the evidence was ruled inadmissible and without the evidence, the trial collapsed. The Supreme Court ruled that despite this, McFarlane could still face a retrial and, though he attempted to have that decision reversed and a judicial review was granted in his favour, that was ultimately reversed also by the High Court. The ultimate opinion of the court was that since the forensic analysis of the items had been preserved, as well as photos, independent and meaningful comparisons could still be made. But before a new date for a retrial could be set, McFarlane launched new proceedings in May of 2006. This time, McFarlane claimed that the delay of six years and four months in securing final judgment on his challenge which was not due to any fault on his part, but rather due to the delays inherent in the court processes, had prejudiced his right to a fair trial. Further, in the intervening years, he had married and had three children, and so he claimed that his family unit was dependent on him for day-to-day care, as his wife was in full-time employment. In March of 2008, Mr. Justice Nicholas Kearns ruled that after a detailed analysis of the litigation in the 10 years since 1998, McFarlane had not established blameworthy systemic or prosecutorial delay, and even if there was such a delay, McFarlane had not demonstrated any actual resulting prejudice that had breached his right to a fair trial. So, the second trial opened on the 11th of June, 2008, before the Special Criminal Court. But this time, the court ruled that Garda evidence of incriminating statements made by McFarlane were inadmissible. The prosecution decided that it would offer no further evidence, and the second trial collapsed also. McFarlane then launched a case against Ireland in the European Court of Human Rights, claiming that he had been denied his right to a fair trial under Article 6 due to the time it had taken to dispose of the case against him. Throughout the process of the trials, appeals and judicial review, McFarlane had to travel to Dublin 40 times over a 10-year period from his home in Belfast. The European Court found that although McFarlane's conduct, quote, had contributed somewhat to the delay, it did not explain the overall length of the proceedings against him. The government had not provided convincing explanations for certain delays attributable to the authorities, which added to the overall length of the criminal proceedings, end quote. The Irish state was ordered to pay a small sum of damages to McFarlane, along with covering the €10,000 in legal costs that McFarlane had accrued. 
In the years after Don Tidy's kidnapping, debates raged in both Ireland and Britain about various policies to try and curb the crimes being committed by paramilitary organisations in both jurisdictions. A ban on kidnapping insurance was mooted, as well as a full ban on Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, from partaking in public life. What became clear was that oftentimes the post office robberies, bank heists and kidnap for ransom were a result of the dwindling financial resources that the IRA had access to. In the past, much of the funding for the organisation had come from fundraising in the United States, but as violence and bombings became more commonplace, it was hard to convince the American cousins to send their dollars here. And it would seem, in fact, that these extreme tactics to raise money did work to an extent. In February of 1985, a bank account containing £2 million was frozen by the government. The huge sum of money was thought to have been deposited by a British insurance agency after the kidnap of Don Tidy, first into a Swiss bank account. The money was then apparently moved to an account at the New York branch of the Bank of Ireland and then back into an account in the Republic. However, no definitive evidence could be gathered that Associated British Foods had in fact made the payment to the IRA. Don Tidy lived up to his children's assessment of him. He was both physically and mentally fit, and he made a full recovery from his ordeal. A number of years later, he went on to marry again to an art teacher whom he met in the aftermath of his abduction. No one was ever charged with the killings of Private Patrick Kelly or Garda Probationer Gary Sheehan. Today, the Gary Sheehan Memorial Medal is presented to the best all-round Garda probationer in their class to commemorate the young Garda who lost his life at Dorada Woods. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Jennifer Anglais, LJ, Aoife Hayes, Rosetta O'Sullivan, Michelle Barnett, Miss F, Robin DeAndrea Bishop and Amelia. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer, so please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mens rea pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Check out ritual.com forward slash mens for 10% off your first three months of Ritual Essential for Women and betterhelp.com forward slash mens for 10% off your first month of professional online counselling. And don't forget to head to the App Store and download Best Fiends too, that's friends without the R, to keep your brain busy during these stressful times. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so please go check them out. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And wash your hands. <laughs>